But I want to set the scene for you. There are thousands of Jews have gathered from all the surrounding areas in Jerusalem and in fact across from across the known world. They've gathered together for the Feast of Weeks, which we refer to as the Feast of Pentecost. Amazing things have already happened. Amazing things have already happened. The disciples had already seen Jesus risen from the dead and they'd watched him as he was taken in the air to be with God. This had only happened 10 days earlier and God through Christ, through Jesus, had given them the promise that they were to go and to wait in Jerusalem. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you a helper. I will give you a guide, a confidant, a friend. And the Holy Spirit, 10 days afterwards, as they were gathered together in an upper room of a house, as they were gathered together, this Holy Spirit fell, displayed as tongues of fire and a rushing wind. Just as Jesus had promised. The one for whom they had been waiting 10 days had finally arrived. And they could not be more excited. They could not probably be more scared than they were in that moment. They could not be more in awe than they were in that moment. And as the tongues of fire fall, as the wind gushes, people rush to see what all the commotion is about because if you've heard the wind on a windy day it's not quiet you can't see it but it's loud and it leaves its effect so people come and they want to see what all this commotion is about and when they arrive they are met with the reality that they are hearing the good news of the gospel the good news about Jesus in their own language in their own tongue. People had gathered from all the known world. And if you've been to Europe or you've been on your holidays, you'll know that there are different languages. So it was even back then. People are gathered and they hear this good news being proclaimed in their own language. And they're bemused by it. They're bewildered. Their jaws have probably dropped. You can picture it if you are in that moment and you go to Spain or you go to, probably Spain's not a good example, but you go to somewhere in the hearts and depths of Africa where they're speaking in their native tongues, in their tribal tongues, and somebody turns around to you and goes, what about you? You doing all right? Big lad. They heard the gospel in their own language, and they are bewildered and bemused by what is happening, because how could this be? Because everybody knew who these men were. People weren't silly. They knew that these had been the men who had followed Jesus. They knew that many of them were just wee fishermen who were uneducated from Galilee. And they could barely speak their own language well. Never mind somebody else's. Never mind the language that they were from themselves. How could it be that these fishermen from Galilee 
uneducated as they were, how they and their mates were speaking fluently in other languages. And they start to rationalise it. You ever done that? When something doesn't make sense, you go, right, let's get to the reason that this is happening. So they begin to rationalise in their head. And the best that they could come up with was that they had drunk too much wine. That they were drunk. They must be drunk. Because there's no way. Or maybe some of them went, am I drunk? That I can hear them speaking in my language? So all of these different rationalizations are flying about the place. People are trying to get to the bottom of it. And then steps forward the one who seems to be their leader. One by the name of Peter. And Peter stands and he addresses the crowd. He's full of confidence. He's speaking with authority and he's speaking with clarity. And he begins to explain to them that actually it's nine o'clock in the morning. We haven't even had any wine, never mind too much of it. We're not drunk. But in fact, he goes on to explain that what was happening before their very eyes was exactly what had been prophesied by one of the Old Testament prophets hundreds of years before. That what they were seeing happen before their eyes was prophesied by the prophet Joel. The Spirit of God was falling on all flesh. The Spirit of God was falling. Now imagine you're in that crowd. Imagine you're one of these people. You'll have heard stories of these men. You'll have heard all the different things that have happened. And maybe if you know enough, you'll suddenly remember. And the penny will drop and you'll turn to your mate, you'll turn to your spouse, you'll turn to whoever you're there with and you'll go, wait, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Is this not the same guy who less than two months ago denied even knowing Jesus? Is this not the same guy who swore at a little girl by a campfire? Is this not the same guy that cut off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was crucified? Was this not the same man who abandoned his faith as quickly as he could and jumped back into a fishing boat like he had been doing all of his life before? Is this not the same guy who at the first sign of trouble packed up everything and packed in everything he claimed to believe and went back to the safety of his nets? Went back to his comfort zone? Fell back on his safety net? Who's he? Who's he to stand there and tell me that this is the prophet Joel's words being prophesied? Who is he? To tell me how great this Jesus is. Sure, when the rubber hit the road, he didn't even believe what he was saying himself. I wonder if you've ever found yourself there. Not so much in the crowd and shouting accusations, but I wonder if you've ever found yourself in the way that I've just described Peter. That when things get hard and obstacles present themselves, when disaster strikes, the easiest thing to do is to hit the default button. 
to go back to what is comfortable and safe rather than the things which require faith and perseverance. I wonder if you've ever been there. We are all, after all, naturally gifted in some way or another. Maybe you don't believe that about yourself, but you're fearfully and wonderfully made. We all have natural giftings in some way, shape or form. These things which we're good at, that if the rubber hits the road, we can fall back on those things. And these make for an easier life, more often than not. For Peter, that natural gifting that I'm speaking of was that he was a skilled fisherman. He was good at it, and he was so good at it that he was able to make a living out of it from before his brother Andrew had told him about Jesus and he had encountered Jesus for himself. That's what he did. He was a fisherman. So when disaster struck, when he had to deal with the agony of betraying Jesus and all the self-loathing that probably came along with that, only for it to be followed by the despair of Jesus' death and crucifixion, and then to have the emotional high of Jesus rising from the dead and saying to Mary Magdalene, go and get my disciples and Peter. It's as though something within Peter went, do you know what? Right now, that's enough. I'm off. Andrew, who was his brother, Andrew, grab the nets. I'm away home. It's very easy for us to sit and top along to that story. But I, I think whenever we dwell a little deeper and try to see all of this from Peter's perspective, that the reality of our humanity begins to kick in and it goes, do you know what? I kind of get that. I kind of get that. He's not had it easy. He seems he can't do right for doing wrong. So what's the point? I'm going back and I'm gonna start fishing again. I can get that. If I, if I stood here and told you that I didn't get that, I'd be lying to you all. I get that. This emotional roller coaster would have probably got the better of me as well. And probably would have got the better of better men and women than me. And it probably would have got the better of you too. So how on earth do we get from John chapter 21 where Peter goes back to casting his fishing nets to Acts chapter 2 which Karen has read for us where he's boldly standing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to a massive crowd. How, how do we get there? The answer is found in what happens to Peter whenever he goes on that fishing trip. And if you have some time later on, go and read John chapter 21. It's a really good read. It's a really encouraging read. But in many ways, it's quite a despairing read as well until you get to the hope at the end. What happens? How does he go from there to there? How does he go from stuff this, I'm done, I'm out, no way, 
to Acts chapter 2, where he's standing up and faithfully and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. The answer is this, that when he's on his fishing trip, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. I love that in this highly charged emotional moment, Jesus and the seven disciples here who were fishing that day, that they share breakfast together on a beach. Again, John 21, go and read it. They share breakfast together on a beach, and that tells me a number of things, and one of those things is this, never underestimate, never underestimate the power of sharing a meal together. Never underestimate the power of sharing a meal together. But during this meal, and the days which would follow, Jesus begins to share afresh his plans and purposes with these disciples. Plans which are more than they are capable of achieving in their own strength. After all, that much has already been clear, hasn't it? Because when the rubber hit the road, Peter takes a step back and he says, nah, I'm done. Plans which they are not capable of in their own strength. But the likelihood is, anybody ever told you you can't do anything? Does it make you more determined to do it anyway? Right? It's funny. The minute we're telling the girls not to touch the wires, they're on the floor, and it's almost like they look at you and they go, nah. And they go and they touch the wires anyway. There's this inbuilt defiance in us, isn't there? And it's not always a bad thing. So Jesus tells them his plans and his purposes. He knows that they're not going to be capable of doing it on their own. But he also knows that they're going to try anyway. So Jesus, in his wisdom, he promises the Holy Spirit. He says, there is one who is coming after me. And he will enable you to do even greater things than I have done whilst I'm here on the earth. This Holy Spirit, who, as we said, will be a helper, a confidant, a friend, a guide. Jesus recognises that they need the work of God in their lives to make possible what would be impossible otherwise. In other words, they are in need of what we call God's sanctifying grace in their lives. But what on earth is sanctifying grace? As we've continued on this journey of grace together, we have considered this compelling invitation that Jesus gives to each one of us to come and see to come and see, to, to follow me. And how this will always be preceded by this affirmation and this promise that you will be. If you follow me, you will be. Remember we looked at Peter and Andrew and how Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And how this is always followed by a command to go and to do. 
We consider together this idea of God's seeking or provenient grace where God in his mercy goes before each one of us, paving the way and gently wooing us to himself. We've also looked at this reality, which can be ours, of saving grace, of salvation, which was bought by the blood of Jesus as he laid down his life on Calvary's cross to pay the debt of sin which separated us from relationship with God. Not only when we die, but in the here and now. This free gift which cannot be earned, but only accepted, marking us with the seal of this promised Holy Spirit and bringing us into right relationship with our Creator, whom sin had separated us from. We've looked at these things, but what is sanctifying grace? And how and why is it important? Sanctifying, uh, sanctification or sanctifying grace is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Simply put, it is this process this ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. It is growing in grace and growing in Christ-likeness. I love what one of our general superintendents has to say about this. He describes it much better than I can. And I guess that's why he's paid the big bucks and not me. He said this, Sanctification is not an optional accessory for a disciple of Jesus. It is standard equipment for every moment. Becoming like Jesus is expected because growth is not an option. We are always growing towards something, always in the process of being spiritually formed. If we're not being transformed, that is changed from the inside out by the renewing power of God, then we are being conformed, that is shaped or molded by forces opposed to God that are loose in the world. We're always growing towards something. I don't know about you, but I always want to be growing towards Jesus. Sanctification is that process of growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And it's something that needs to be worked at. It's something that requires effort. Something that conscious effort must be given to. Go we table. We're in the process of weaning the girls, and what that is is helping them move from milk to solid food, right? So, if anybody has any children or knows of any children, every child has to go through this process. And the process always starts with milk. They need sustenance. And that can come through breast milk or that can come through formula. You'll be glad to know that this is semi-skimmed milk. Didn't actually get me there, but you understand the process. In order to nourish them, in order that they may grow, in order that they may be all that they have created to be, in order for them to survive in those early days, there is a requirement of milk. 
and they suggest that milk be that breast or formula milk, that that be used until at least the age of one. Now they say as well that this weaning process can start before the age of one, but milk must be a constant throughout it all. So they say, food for fun before one. So we decided that we, Chloe and I, we love food. So we were gonna instill that into our children from a very young age. So, as soon as they were home and strong enough, and it's important that we follow their lead a lot on this, we moved them on to some pureed fruit. It's actually really nice. <laughs> we moved them on to some pureed fruit. They still had the milk. It was their basic need. They still have the milk. And after a while, we introduced some porridge, and I couldn't make porridge up here. Some baby porridge. And then, whenever they hit seven months old, we decided, now's the time. And whenever they were seven, they had their first pureed chili con carne. <laughs> right? They're having chili con carne later because I've opened this and it needs to be used within 24 hours. Right? No, 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 just a spoonful. And this chili con carne is not completely smooth. There's a little bit of texture. It's a little bit bitty. But it's still pureed. Tastes really good. Will be nice and warm, actually. And that was great. And then whenever they get up, and whenever they hit one, we'll move them, we'll begin to gradually move them away from the milk. And they'll get more pureed fruit, they'll get more chili con carne. There are other dishes and other brands available. And I am buzzing for the day that they are old enough to enjoy one of these. A wee wisp of gold. You want to know the way to my heart? It's spelt wisp of gold. Mm. Delightful. It's softer. There's more flavours in there. It's smooth. There's aerated pockets. It's not really crunchy, but it is really delicious. And so the process continues. And once they're comfortable with that, here's some nuts. I need to check, do we have any nut allergies in the room? Good. Correct answer. This nut has a hard outer shell. It has a tough texture. It requires lots of teeth. Whenever I was going through some toothache and some dental work, 
I could not eat my beloved nuts because they get stuck in every nut and cranny. They were hard to eat. And you'll hear here. <laughs> There's a definite crunch to it. And I observe in churches that many people expect people when they become Christians to go straight to the nuts. They expect them to behave like they do. They, they expect them to believe exactly what they believe. And they, exact, they, they expect them to do all of the things that they are doing. But scripture paints this beautiful picture that whenever somebody first comes to faith, they're not expected to be here. But they start here. They start with the knock. The writer to the Hebrews, he says to them in Hebrews chapter 5, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. These are people who have been Christians for a long time. These are people who have had faith in Christ for a long time. And he says, you have become dull of hearing. He doesn't mean that they're deaf physically. He means that they hear what they want to hear. That they don't wish to be challenged, and they don't wish to grow says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, in other words, since you ought to be consuming the nuts, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You're still stuck on the milk stage when you should be devouring solid food by now. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness, since he is a child. In other words, they're baby Christians. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you think Chloe would feel if I went home and I gave the little ones this? She wouldn't be too happy with me, would she? She might even raise her voice. Not that Chloe would do such a thing. She might even raise her voice. How would she feel if I went and gave this breast milk to Audrey? She'd look at me like I had two heads. Audrey would probably look at me like I had two heads too. Because the milk's meant for babies. And the solid food is meant for those who are mature. And so it is with our walk with Jesus. This reality of sanctification should mean that we are going through this process from milk to puree 
to texture, to belly, to solid. The process of sanctification begins at the moment that we personally experience saving grace. But that is not when it ends. This will not sustain you. Although we are initially sanctified, we should continue to grow in grace through our whole lives. We need to move from the milk to the solid food. We need to be living lives which reflect more of Christ each and every day. We should be looking like, acting like, and living for Christ more this time next year than we are today. And that is only possible through the sanctifying grace of God, distributed by his Holy Spirit as we walk in step with him and cooperate with him. And we train by practice, exercising the means of grace, such as prayer, such as studying the Bible, such as fasting, such as partaking in the communion meal together as we did last week, such as going through the waters of baptism and spending time with other Christians. But it's also expressed and experienced through feeding the hungry, caring for the widow, clothing those who are naked, telling others about Jesus. And whilst we cannot do this on our own, or we cannot make ourselves more like Jesus on our own, something beautiful happens when we cooperate with God. <clears throat> something beautiful happens. He himself, the Holy One, makes us holy as we offer ourselves to him in our entirety. We don't become sinless. We don't become perfect. We'll still make mistakes along the way. But we do come to a point where Jesus is Lord of our lives. And we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, body and mind. Becoming more and more like Christ in this life. God continues the good work which he started in us until its completion on the day of Christ Jesus. This takes effort. It does. It takes effort. It takes constant denial of our own goods, what we think is good, and surrendering it for what God says is best. Our good for God's best. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And we begin to realise in this life our reason for living. To love God and to glorify him. It takes work. But don't worry. Effort is required. But sanctifying grace is provided. Jesus meets you where you are by the power of his Holy Spirit and refuses to leave you there. So how does Peter move from I'm done? I'm away fishing to boldly proclaiming. How does he move from there to there? The answer is in God's sanctifying grace, at work in his life, and the giving of himself in entire devotion to the cause of the kingdom of God.
So as we bring this message to a close and we move toward a song worship, what is God asking of you today? What is God asking of us today? What is God asking of you? What mountains are you maybe facing in your life right now? What are you going through right now that makes you want to pack it all in and go back to where you were before you responded to Christ's seeking grace and received the gift of his saving grace? Whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through, whatever you've been through, Christ was there. Whatever you're experiencing right now, Christ is here. The future that seems unknown and unclear, good news, Christ is already there. And today he gives to you his sanctifying grace and he promises that he will never leave nor forsake you. So today, why not put a stake in the ground and devote yourself, your life, your ambitions, your hopes, your plans, and say to Jesus, take my life and let it be. Whatever you want it to be. Take every part of me and use me for your glory. Make me into who you created me to be, that I may become more and more like you, and that I may be the person that Christ has called me to be. So that we together may be the church that this community needs us to be. Let's stand. And may this song be the prayer of your hearts as you respond to the sanctifying grace of God.